1: Diplomacy Fails presents the July Crisis Anniversary Project, a day-by-day account of the events that occurred 100 years ago. Death of a Statesman. Today is the 10th of July 2014 and around this time in history one hundred years ago occurred the following events. The Austro Hungarian military chief of staff, Conrad von Hotzendorf, would surely have been horrified to note how the situation had changed. Before meeting with Tiza and his colleagues on the afternoon of Tuesday, the seventh of july nineteen fourteen, war seemed certain, buoyed by the certainty of German support and the support of the Habsburg Emperor that went with it. Yet the situation rapidly changed once the Hungarian minister-president, Stefan Tisa had taken the floor. He had altered, fundamentally, the style of the Habsburg response to Serbia. Whereas it had once been an undeclared war, now it would be a two-step diplomatic process of a list of demands followed by an ultimatum. This would mean that, for Conrad's military mind, the truth was he could not put any mobilization plans he had into action before the ultimatum was clearly denied by the Serbs. Conrad no longer had the authority to plan the preemptive sneak attack against Serbia that would overcome the troublesome Balkan enclave and re-establish Habsburg prestige once and for all. Conrad could bemoan the fact that a civilian had ruined yet again the monarchy's chance to show its worth but he would have known that Tees's moves only played 50% of the role in committing Austria-Hungary to a less straightforward policy. Earlier in the day, he'd been dealt similarly devastating news. When Conrad phoned the new commander-in-chief, the Habsburg Archduke Friedrich, early on the 7th of July to inform him that war was effectively the state's destination, he had perhaps acted prematurely. However, where Conrad had really been stumped was the fact that many portions of the Austro-Hungarian Armed Forces were not at that very moment in time in technical existence. As he phoned the operational commander tasked with organising any mobilizations, he was reminded of the issue of harvest leave. Conrad surely got that sinking feeling when he recalled signing off on a new article directed at the Armed Forces back in May 1914 which had been designed to enable troops from rural areas to have the ability to return home and collect their harvest, effectively granting them a sort of holiday from any military service. What this meant on the ground was that seven of Conrad's 16 Army Corps had recently been released for harvest leave. In other words, the Hasburg Army was essentially at half strength. Not until the 19th of July were five of these units expected to return, while the final two would return on the 25th. Unless Conrad wanted to wave a belligerent flag in front of Serbia, he couldn't very well cancel Harvest Leave and recall his soldiers to their barracks. Such an act would telegraph to Serbia the exact nature of Austria's intentions. Conrad had to accept then that his hands were for the moment tied, though he remained firmly within the war party. Conrad's knowledge of this fact and the possible dissemination of it may have played a large part in dampening the enthusiasm for war as Tisa put his demands across on the afternoon of July 7th. Though it did not dampen Conrad's resolve, it did mean that the entire face of the Habsburg response would have to be further doctored. Conrad discussed this fact the next day, on the evening of Wednesday the 8th of July, as he talked with the Austro-Hungarian foreign minister, Leopold von Berchtold about recent developments. Berchtold's major concern was how he would go about persuading Tisa towards the war party, whilst Conrad's major concern was how to develop a strong response despite the fact that his armed forces were in such a tough position. Both agreed that evening that the ultimatum, whenever it was sent, should contain a 24 or 48 hour response time limit, so as to prevent Serbia from having time to properly mobilise as it debated the contents. The result of this debate would ideally be war, in which case a mobilised Austria-Hungary would face an under-mobilised Serbia. The issue of war brought Tisa back into view, and Berchtold promised he would focus his energies on the Hungarian minister-president to persuade him towards war. Conrad replied that Berchtold would have plenty of time, since the army was literally paralysed until at least the 22nd of July. This was in fact three days before the final units returned from Harvest leave, but Conrad and Berchtold agreed it should stand as the ideal date for sending the ultimatum, since, by the time Serbia replied in the negative, Habsburg forces would be en route to their barracks anyway, since they'd be returning from harvest leave, so redirecting them towards the border shouldn't be too hard an exercise. Though the fact that Tuesday the 22nd of July was now the earliest that Habsburg statesmen could now feasibly take a strong course in their foreign policy was immensely ridiculous. Since that would be over three weeks since the assassination, and foreign opinion would have largely forgotten the entire thing. As Berktold and Conrad conversed though, the idea emerged that this wouldn't be such a bad thing. Perhaps it was better that the world forgot, and that Serbia was lulled into a false sense of security. That way, when the raft of diplomatic action did occur on the 22nd of July, Serbia may be off balance, and certainly wouldn't be expecting Austria-Hungary to use force, meaning its own preparations would be scant. This argument, the Habsburg policy making was so slow that it would mean Europe forgot about the whole thing, was the result of Austrian statesmen trying to make the best of a bad situation. It didn't seem to matter to Burchtold or Conrad at the time that foreign statesmen may ask exactly what took the Habsburgs so long to respond when the axes began to fall on the 22nd, because for the moment deception remained the best course of action. To further flesh this deception out, Burchtold asked Conrad to go on leave of absence and take his holidays from Vienna, along with the War Minister, so as to give the impression that nothing was going on. It seems like a seriously sneaky and dishonest move to take, but for Berchtold and Conrad, deception remained the only way of still fulfilling the goal of an armed response to Serbia. Tiza, Berchtold hoped, could, between today, the 8th of July, and the 22nd, be persuaded towards advocating war with Serbia. Bergdahl had already begun trying to persuade Tiza on the 8th of July by the use of pressure. He had a conversation with the German ambassador, Chertsky, in which Bergdahl told him that Tiza was the one slowing things down, so as to hopefully install confidence in the Germans that the majority of Habsburg statesmen did want war. Then he sent Tiza a note detailing what Chertsky had said, particularly his remarks which had revolved around the issue of speed and the need for urgency. Berchtold concluded the German ambassador's remarks when he said that the Germans would regard any reconciliation on our part with Serbia as a sign of weakness. Berchtold told Tiza that the next day he would be meeting with the Emperor Franz Josef and begged the Hungarian to telegraph the palace with his response in time. It was obvious, Berchtold hoped, that by using this pressure, by claiming that the state waited on him, it would spur Tiza to repent his stance. However, Berchtold ought to have learned by now that, like the Ministerial Council on the 7th of July in which he was outnumbered, Tisa would not be pressured into a position he didn't believe in. The only way Tisa was going to change his outlook on the situation was if he changed his opinion organically. That Thursday on the 9th of July, Berchtold met with the Habsburg Emperor at 9am. They poured together over Tisa's actual response. It had not been a declaration of his change in position as Berchtold had hoped for, instead it had been a reinforcement of his beliefs. Berchtold was deeply annoyed at Tiza since, having actually received and read his reply the night before, he would have known that once again it would be him who would have to communicate the fact to the Emperor that the response vis vis Serbia had not yet been created. Yet again, the Habsburg foreign minister surely lamented, he was meeting his sovereign armed with nothing save apology and promises. Franz Josef appeared conciliatory and willing to listen when he met his foreign minister that morning though and as the two read Tiza's memorandum on the whole event, a way to gain satisfaction began to emerge. Teza, within his memo, had argued the necessity of preparing the diplomatic foundations before harsh action, noting that, If war were to result after all, it must be demonstrated before the eyes of the world that we stand on a basis of legitimate self-defense. Teza had also escalated his previous nightmare scenario, now the three-front war he'd envisioned against Serbia, Russia and Romania also involved Italy, who would swoop in as Austria-Hungary struggled for its life to take the disputed Tyrol region. Berchtold and Josef examined all these points, and Berchtold, in the end conceded that if Teaser so desperately wanted to establish diplomatic protocol through the use of an ultimatum, then Berchtold would set about crafting one, but he was going to start as soon as possible. What seems to have tipped the scales in favour of Berchtold finally acting was Franz Josef's claim that, following the events of the past few days between German support and the evidence leaking out of the investigation into Serbian in compliance with the assassins, that there was no going back. Berchtold should request that the ultimatum be drawn up, the Habsburg Emperor explained, and he should do so today. So that day on Thursday, the 9th of July, Berchtold tasked his staff with drafting an ultimatum. Though Teza would have to approve of its contents, Berchtold could at least feel like he was doing something as he worked. And, if the ultimatum proved acceptable to Teza, then the whole process could move faster once the 22nd of July approached. Berchtold in other words, wanted to be prepared. He did not want the 22nd of July to arrive with himself and Tisa still arguing the finer points of the ultimatum. Let the crafting process begin now, so the creases could be ironed out early. Perhaps such work would give the impression to their German ally that the Austrians were seriously working to make waves, even if those waves were to be controlled by Teaser's parameters. It seemed to have had the desired effect because on the morning of Friday the 10th of July, the German ambassador in Vienna, Chersky reported back to Berlin that the Austrians were finally getting their act together at last. The German ambassador would report back to his superiors that himself and Berchtold had had a conversation that morning, in which Berchtold had admitted that Tisa had watered down the ultimatum, as Chertsky put it to his colleagues back home. So that he, Berchtold, would appear more gentlemanlike, using the actual English phrase for the sake of emphasis. However, Vienna was at least in the process of crafting ultimatum to Belgrade with a strict time limit, at most forty-eight hours. Chersky even mentioned the fact that Conrad and the War Minister were on holiday, so as to guard against any impression of alarm. Though painfully slow and not nearly striking enough for their ally, Chersky was at least able to communicate that this process was gaining a level of ground, and he seemed himself at least willing to understand the difficult nature of the issue for the Foreign Minister. The level of calm on this morning of Friday the 10th of July would soon be broken later that evening though, with the death of a statesman miles away in the Serbian capital of Belgrade. Nikolai Hartwig, Russia's ambassador to Serbia, woke up on this morning, 100 years ago, on the 10th of July 1914, feeling the worst for wear. Hartwig's job was a highly stressful one. It involved effectively representing the Russian Empire in the capital of the Russian Empire's most important Balkan ally. He had experienced success The Balkan League that had empowered the small Balkan states against their former Ottoman overlord resulted in a dramatic increase in strength for these states, including Serbia. Now though, he was a tired man, eager to take his vacation and rest in his favourite resort, as he did every summer. It seemed long overdue. Hartwig was obese, prone to chest pains, and suffered from angina pectoris. He would spend most nights crippled by painful headaches, as a result of the hypertension and immense pressure his posting incurred. He had to wait just three more days though. Every year the vacation did him the world of good, refreshing him for the autumn and enabling him to drop some weight and give his nerves a rest. On the 13th of July he would be off, but having gotten word that the Austrian ambassador to Vienna, Gisel von Gieselingen, had just returned from a long holiday himself in Vienna, Hartwig knew that he would have to face the music. Rumours abounded that it had been his idea to not pay his respects and fly the embassy flag at half-mast, as every other deputation did on the day of Franz Ferdinand's funeral on the 3rd of July. Rumours were also rampant that he had had a jovial evening with numerous statesmen on the night of the assassination, and that laughter and noises of celebration could be heard from their embassy. Because no Austrian ambassador had been present, Vienna's opinion of Hartwig had only worsened as the latter failed to pay his formal respects since the event. However, with the Habsburg ambassador back, Hartwig could put it off no longer. He journeyed to the Austro-Hungarian embassy at 9pm that evening on the 10th of July, no doubt expecting to have to answer for numerous rumours, many of which held some weight he would have been pleasantly surprised to note that the Austrian ambassador, von Gieselingen, seemed altogether accommodating and willing to accept Hartwig's version of events. Having noted to the ambassador his own vacation plans and of his poor health and need to rest, Hartwig then expressed his personal and sincere condolences for the atrocious outrage that had occurred on the 28th of June. He began then to try and address the issue of Serbian compliance when something odd happened. He lost consciousness, and slowly slid, cigarette still between his fingers, off his seat to the floor. A local Serbian doctor was called in, and Hartwig's own physician followed him, but they were unable to wake him up. By half past nine on the evening of the tenth of july, Russia's ambassador to Serbia was dead, having spent his last moments in an Austrian embassy. Immediately, Gisel phoned ahead for Hartwig's daughter Ludmilla. When she arrived, having been with the Serb crown prince Alexander, she immediately set about trying to establish Hausburg guilt in the event. She checked through flower pots for signs of foul play, dusted the window sills, inspected the chair he had sat and died on, and inquired as to what he had eaten or drank while there. Discounting the possibility of poison, and no doubt seeing where this was all going, Giselt told her that her father had merely smoked three Russian cigarettes that he had brought with him. Ludmilla demanded the Butts as evidence, and Giesel instructed that they be handed over. Leaving the embassy determined to prove Austrian guilt, she fortunately wasn't present when, after being informed of the incident, local Serb police attempted to investigate the area. Giesel told them that, because of diplomatic immunity, they were not authorised to enter the building, let alone conduct an investigation. Giesel was probably exhausted after the event, and didn't want red tape all across his embassy, and his act of refusal was well within his diplomatic rights. However, it would merely add in the future to the storm of controversy and rumour that exploded out of the event. Nikolai Hartwig, in many ways the nemesis of the Austro-Hungarian plans for the Balkans, was dead after suffering a heart attack, technically, while on Habsburg territory. As a Russian statesman tasked with improving the position of Serbia in the Balkans, he had succeeded on numerous levels, and had also ingratiated himself to the Serbian people, who loved him as one of their own, and were said to be planning his funeral and burial to take place within Serbia, a hugely unique event for the time. The untimely nature of Hartwig's death and its repercussions would add to the growing atmosphere in Belgrade. Although the Serbian capital had not heard much news since the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, after the death of the Russian statesman, it seemed as though the entire country, let alone the old city, was now at war.
0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend.